let that be our prayer, that you would truly do something new in us. And we can pray that prayer no matter where we are with you this morning. Because those of us who have been made new once are still longing and are still asking for more of you. And may that be our constant desire, our constant heart's cry, that what you have given us in new life in Christ and regeneration from the Holy Spirit, that, Father, we would continually long for a greater and deeper experience of who you are and all that you have for us. And, Father, for those that have never had a a deep experience with you, for those who don't even know what this song is asking or what this prayer is praying, Father, we pray that you would reach them right now in the deepest inner parts of their hearts and in their minds, that you would make them new. Father, we do pray for a new work, a new work that can only be done by you in this body, in this community, in these people. Father, we want to see more and more people come into the life that only you can give. Come into the fullness of life renewed by the Spirit, made truly new, Father. Would you do that in us this morning? Would you set hearts aflame? Would you renew minds? And Father, make people new. Because we want to celebrate not what we're doing, but what you're doing. But Father, there's many of us in this room this morning gathered together, and we can say in full recognition, there was once a time when we felt new, we felt full of energy for the things that you offer, felt full of life with you. And yet the cares and the concerns of this world have weighed down, have brought despair, have lessened energy. And Father, for those people experiencing despair or just experiencing a plateau within their life with you, where they don't feel like they're growing, they don't feel like they're learning, Father, start something new. Inflame a heart again. Recapture a heart with the beauty of who you are and what you have done. Father, may your word this morning enrapture us to see the beauty of all that you offer and all that you have done. And God, we pray that you would remove any distractions that would lead us to despair or or limit our vision on you this morning. Because we know the cares and the concerns of this world are many. And so there are those struggling with illnesses. There are those struggling in emotional and spiritual despair. There are those with financial concerns, and there are those with physical and health concerns. Father, would you clarify in our minds what matters most this morning and open our minds to receive your word. Father, this morning we praise you for a great number of things. We praise you for the opportunity to gather here as one body in your presence and open your word together as a family united in you. And on this date, 
of September 11th, Father, we remember. We remember the great events now over 20 years ago in our own nation. The despair, the hurt, and the fear that we all experienced as the attacks came within our own nation. And Father, we pray that for those that remember today, that you would grant new hope and new life. And Father, that for all of us, we would not take the opportunities that we have in front of us for granted. And on this day of all days, we would remember how greatly fragile our life is, how fragile the opportunities to gather and worship are, how fragile our freedom is in you and our freedom in this nation. And Father, we pray, we pray that you would give us a greater sense of dependence upon you as we remember the traumatic events of this day. But God, give us hope because we're here and we have an opportunity to proclaim your beauty, to proclaim to the nations and to the watching world all that you are and all that you have done. So just as 9-11 all those many years ago gave us clarity of what mattered most in our lives and in our families. Father, may today you give us clarity as we open your word of what matters most in our eternity and in our life together as a local church. So speak to us this morning, Father. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, well, thank you for gathering with us this morning. Let's dismiss the kids to their time of worship upstairs. That is preschool through the fifth grade. They can go ahead and go. If they're checked in to um, kids' ministry, they can just make their way up there, and the leaders will greet them in the um, lobby there and get them to the classrooms they need to, they need to go to. Um, it's a big week, and this is just sort of the normal rhythm of life in a local church that you get past Labor Day and normal sort of sets in. And maybe it's true in your family, but within this church, what we do is we, we start a lot after Labor Day. And that's kind of where we are today, in that this evening we have um, Sunday evening kids ministry starting up again at 5.30 this evening. And so that means literally, no matter who you are and how old you are, there is something for you on this campus this evening. And so we would invite any of you to come back for it. Um, for kids, we have uh, nursery and we have kids ministry. The Gospel Project continues into Sunday evening tonight. And this is the first night of the evening Gospel Project program. We'd love for you to have your kids here this evening and see what it's all about and be with us. It's a great program that is, is organized well and ready to go for tonight. So that starts tonight, 530 to 730. Also, 5.30 to 7.30, our youth ministry is meeting in the youth room. So kids are going to be in this building down here. They're going to come in here and go upstairs. The youth are going to be in the youth room at where they normally are. We also have adult ministry going on this evening. We've been talking for a few weeks about um, one of our elders, Larry Winter, is going to lead us in a financial seminar for the three weeks in, um, or the three Sunday nights coming up in September. So that starts this evening at 5.30 in the room right behind me. And so for this evening, the 18th and the 25th at 5.30, there will be, if you are an adult that's not connected to a small group, if you're an adult that is connected to a small group, but you want to 
find out what's going on with this financial seminar, um, join us for that. We have sign-ups at the table, and you can still sign up for that, or you can just come and join us this evening. We'd love for you to sign up so we have some idea of how much space we need for this. Um, but if you haven't signed up yet, you're still welcome to come. There's also a lot of uh, small groups that meet typically on Sunday evenings, and some of them have decided we're going to take a season of time off on Sunday evenings so we can participate in this, uh, in this financial series together. And so if you're interested in being a part of something on Sunday nights here, um, come tonight and, and there is something for you, whether it's the financial series or, or there are other small groups that in the coming weeks will go back to meeting on Sunday nights. We'd love to get you plugged in and connected with any of that. Other connection things going on. Um, some of you may have noticed, but we have a lot of kids around here. And um, for that reason, we're having two Sundays this fall that we will dedicate service time to dedicating children to the Lord. It's a beautiful ceremony. It's an opportunity for parents to bring a child. And, and typically, it's an infant. It doesn't have to be an infant. If you've never done this with your older child, come and do it. And what the parents say in this part, in this section of the, of the um, service, is they come and they make a commitment in the presence of God and in the presence of the local church to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Those are fancy biblical terms that mean that you are training up your child to follow Christ, to love Jesus, and to obey the way of life that he has charted for us. And, uh, and then it's not just a commitment from the parents, as if the parents are now you know, held to this standard from the church. It's actually a commitment from the church that we're going to support, pray for, and encourage those parents in what is an exceptionally difficult task. And we all know that. We all know that the culture, that the world is out to get our children, and, we, and that Satan is a real enemy that is prowling to deceive young people. And there are so many opportunities for deceit for young people, for despair and discouragement in the lives of young people. And so, y'all, parenting is hard. Parenting young children in this generation is hard. It's been hard in every generation. And so we need to do it together. Part of what we do in child dedication is we make a commitment to do it together. And so that we'll have that next week. If you want to be a part of that, um, then um, email Ramona, uh, email me, and let us know you'd like to be a part, and we'll get you the information you need. There's some information on our website about that if you're looking for more information about that. Also, next week, we'll have a new members lunch immediately after the service. So that is for, let me tell you who that's for. That's for everybody that's not a member. Whether you've been here for, this is your first Sunday, or you've been here for uh, five years and you've never become a member of the church, we'd love for you to hear what we mean by membership. Because sometimes different churches define it differently and handle membership a little bit differently. But we want you to know what a member is at Fellowship Bible Church. What the process is for becoming a member, what we expect of you as members, what you can expect of us as leadership as a member of the church. And so we want to share some information for you. You can sign up for that and be a part of that lunch. Just let me know, let Ramona know if you want to be a part of that lunch. That will be next Sunday immediately after the church or after the, the 1030 service. And then we've got also sign-ups for a women's fall event at the back table in this room um, that is on September 24th. We'll do another child dedication in October. We'll do another baptism in October. And so if September 18th doesn't work for you for membership or for child dedication, come and talk to me and we'll get other dates for both of those. We've got another baptism date coming up. We'd love to have more people involved in any of those things. So there's lots of ways to get connected and to take a next step step 
of right now in this season. Um, but the big thing is, come back this evening. Join us for the financial seminar. Join us for youth ministry, for kids ministry. We'd love to see um, all of you here. And if we run out of space, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll accommodate um, from there. So we're going to start a new section in the Word. We're going to actually go to 1 Timothy, but don't turn there yet. See, I faked you out there. I, saw, I heard pages rustle. I read something this week, and what it said was there was a commentator that was saying one of the reasons that people fail to understand what Christianity is is because there's really no such thing as Christianity. The point he was making is that actually there's different versions of Christianity. So there's no one Christianity. There's Christianities, plural. There's different versions of Christianity with different doctrinal traits, different ways of practicing, different ways of, of um, acting on the beliefs of the church. What he was trying to say is that there's not a single unified Christianity. And if you're a Christian and you've lived as a Christian for some years, you might have some sympathy towards that point of view. Because probably at some point that you've had this experience where you've seen some sort of news clipping with somebody who claims to be a Christian and they say something and you're like, that does not represent me. And you've seen the, the news media or, or some outlet represent Christians in a certain way, and you say, well, that's not me. That doesn't represent what I believe. There is great diversity within what Christians believe. Well, this commentator took it a little too far because what he was saying is that there has, in fact, never been a... It was a, it's a, it was a crazy claim when you think about it. The comment he was making is that for 2,000 years of church history, there has never been a unified center of Christianity. Christianity's always been diverse. There's always been doctrinal disagreements. There's always been practical, liturgical disagreements where different churches do things differently. What he was trying to say is that there is no center. There is no unified Christianity. Now, here's, here's the problem with that. If we allow that type of language, then we now don't have an ability as a local church to find the center of what we believe. And we need to, in some way, find out what the basics are. What is the core of who we are as Christians? Because from the outside looking in, sure, you can say Christians are a diverse group. There's so many churches in town, and you can go down this very street and see churches that do things in all sorts of different ways. You can go around town, you can see different worship styles, you can see different architectural styles and design styles, you can see different ministry strategies and plans. Churches do things different ways. So our church is diverse, absolutely we say yes. The question is, what's at the center? And is there a center that unifies us, that actually defines what a Christian is and what a Christian is not. And that is exactly the point that Paul is going to try to make in this little book, this little letter that we're going to unpack over the next few weeks, this letter to 1 Timothy. What Paul is telling the church in Ephesus is that there are Christians that, or there are people that claim to be Christians that say some of the right things that are in fact dangerous. Dangerous and misleading in the doctrines that they teach. 
And therefore, in order for a church to be unified, we've got to figure out what the core is, what the center is. Now, we're in a unique setting. Maybe you've had this experience where um, you've had somebody that's asked you about your local church. And you've said, I go to Fellowship Bible Church. And they say, well, what is that? What is a Bible church? And you maybe you've said, gee, I don't know. Because it's, it's not as simple to define as a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church. You say, well, we're non-denominational. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, we don't have a denomination. Well, well what, is the, what, is it, what is at the core? What defines you as a local church? And here's my goal for the next few weeks, that we would seek to understand that what defines us most as a local church is what defines the church in Scripture. And the, the point that we will make is that there is a core, there is a center of the church, a doctrinal core. And, and you might not like the word doctrine, so we can use the word a set of beliefs. But there is a core set of beliefs that Christians must believe, protect, guard, and defend. That's the whole point of 1 Timothy. That the truth at the center of what we believe as Christians is so vitally important that we must protect it because it will be attacked from the outside. Paul prepared the church in Ephesus for this. In Acts 20. So before we go to 1 Timothy, we're going to go a little bit into the background, into Acts 20, because Timothy is leading the church in Ephesus. And so at the formation of the church in Ephesus, in the book of Acts, Paul leads the church for a time himself. Paul essentially functions as the pastor, as the lead elder of the church in Ephesus for a period of time. And then he prepares to leave. And in his final remarks, he gives a warning to the people. So we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Again, in context, this is Paul speaking specifically to a group of leaders in the church. This is not Paul addressing the whole church of Ephesus. This is Paul addressing the group of elders, of chosen leaders in Ephesus. So he says, pay attention to yourself and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So here's, here's where... Here's where Paul is going here in Acts 20 and in the book of 1 Timothy. He's telling us that there are wolves coming. There are dangers. There are challenges coming to the local church. And you as leaders of the local church, you must be ready. You must be on your guard. And, and the question we have for us is, is there something, is this commentator that I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, is he right 
in saying you can't find the real truth of Christianity because all throughout history, Christianity has been so diverse. Is that true? Or is there a core that we must guard and protect? Is there a set of beliefs that must define who Christians are and who Christians are not? What the gospel is and what the gospel is not. What salvation is and what salvation is not. Because if there is a core set of truths that everyone must believe that are of such great eternal significance, then nothing matters more than knowing, protecting, and defending those core truths. So can we, as a body, unify ourselves and unite with the other churches in our community around a core set of beliefs that holds us together so that we can weather the challenges that we face in the storms of culture? See, Paul was preparing Timothy for a storm. He was preparing the church of Ephesus for a storm. And false teaching in Ephesus in Paul and Timothy's day was not just this intellectual exercise where there were interesting debates to be had between one side and another. It was a dangerous cancer that was leading many astray in the church. And Paul said, look out for the wolves. Identify them, deal with them. Because you will face more struggle if you do not. And so for the next few weeks, we'll unpack this over a series of sermons, looking at what is the message of the church. Essentially, the the question, what is Christianity? What is this movement that we have identified ourselves with? What does it mean to follow Jesus within the body of a local church? These are the questions of 1 Timothy. The message of 1 Timothy is simple. Paul is writing to organize a church around the proper beliefs and behaviors that protect and project the gospel to the watching world. Organize a local church around beliefs and behaviors that protect and project the gospel to the watching world. That's the message of 1 Timothy. And there's all sorts of issues that get addressed along the way. Here are some of the things we'll talk about in the next couple of months. What does a church believe? What are the most important doctrines? What's the most important message for us to believe? How do the Old Testament laws apply? That's where we'll go into the next two weeks. Chapter 1 goes straight into the Old Testament laws and how those apply within a new covenant church. Do men and women serve in the same ways in the church? Is there a distinction? 1 Timothy 2 talks about that. Who is qualified to lead? Who should be leading the church? 1 Timothy 3, we'll get there soon. How is a false teacher identified? What, how do we know teaching that is actually false? Where, where, do we, where do we draw the line between teaching that's just not completely correct and just needs to be adjusted and teaching that is so false that it needs to be rebuked? So how is a false teacher identified and how is a false teacher dealt with within a local church? What is Christian character? One of the things that we'll see in 1 Timothy that may surprise some of us is doctrine, this set of beliefs that we hold to, is never separated from character. You cannot, within the framework that Paul sets up in 1 Timothy, be somebody who believes the right things and and does the wrong things in response to it. Your character flows out of what you believe, and those two things are very intimately tied together in the message of 1 Timothy. So what is Christian character? 
And then some practical items. How does a church serve widows? What do Christians do with their money? All of that in the six chapters of this little book, this personal correspondence of Paul writes a letter to Timothy, and it's a message for the whole church for all time. So as we jump in, we'll do two verses today. And in the coming weeks, this is the message that we'll unpack together. It really goes to the core of what is Christianity, what do we believe, what are we all about here as a local group of people. 1 Timothy 1.1, we'll start there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's set the context here for this book of 1 Timothy. I've already told you, Timothy is leading a church in Ephesus. Now, in Acts 20, I told you we read that because before Paul writes the letter to Timothy, Paul actually is the one that, is start, that starts the church in Ephesus in the book of Acts. And Paul leads the church in Ephesus himself for three years. And then in Acts 20, he leaves and he gives this charge to the elders that he has with the congregation chosen to serve and lead the church into the next generation. Well then, some years later, he sends Timothy. And it's actually not appropriate to say that Timothy was simply the pastor of the church. Because I don't think that's the best descriptor. Because when we have the understanding of pastor, we have this sense, we, we kind of know what a pastor is. Timothy is probably better defined as a representative, as an apostolic representative, a representative of the apostles. That sounds like a really big, complicated term, but here's all I mean by that. Timothy was sent temporarily to go and be Paul's personal representative of the gospel message within Ephesus. And so Paul had charged the elders in Ephesus before he left not to deal with wolves, or not to, not to allow wolves to continue, but to deal with false teaching. And then some years later, presumably, the church in Ephesus had not guarded their doctrine enough. And Timothy was sent in to lead the church in Ephesus and to combat the false teaching that they were facing there. And so Timothy is not necessarily a permanent resident of Ephesus who is pastoring the local church as much as he is sent there for a few years as a representative of Paul and the other apostles to fix what is broken in this very important church in a very dangerous and hostile environment in the ancient city of Ephesus. So Paul is at this stage, um, has been serving Christ for a number of years. You guys probably know the radical conversion story of Paul, how he once um, was persecuting believers and then God radically saved him and called him to himself. And this is later on in Paul's life where he's been in prison multiple times. And now he's writing to Timothy, recognizing that Paul's own ministry is starting to wind down. And if you look at these three letters together, 1 Timothy and the ones that follow, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, they are together called the pastoral epistles. And they're called pastoral epistles because they deal with writing to pastoral leadership in the church, writing to those who lead the church at the highest level. But make no mistake, this book is for you. I actually don't love calling it a pastoral epistle because it leaves 
the normal average Christian to say, well, that book is for Pastor Tim, not for me. That, this book is for you. And that's why I think it's better actually to refer to Timothy as Paul's delegate because what you'll see from the language that Paul is using here, Paul fully intends for everyone in Ephesus to hear the content of this letter. This is a letter that everyone is supposed to hear, know, and embrace the truth of. That's why Paul comes out of the gate kind of hard. You know, Paul, if you've read any of the letters of Paul, you notice that Paul tends to start in sort of a similar way. Paul identifies himself as an apostle. Is that a prideful move for Paul to make, to say, I'm an apostle, therefore listen to me? I don't believe it's a prideful move. I think it's just a practical move. That to be an apostle in the New Testament is a significant role that is chosen by one person. In the New Testament, one person decides who an apostle is, and that's Jesus. And that's what Paul is affirming here in the introduction to 1 Timothy. See, Jesus called the 12 disciples to himself, and then he calls them apostles. The word disciple means follower. The word apostle, anybody know what it means? It means messenger. It means one who is sent out. And so it's a different stage. As he goes through the process with his disciples, they follow him for three years. But then their time of following him reaches its culmination, at least in the physical sense of Jesus' life on earth, and then he sends them as apostles. So certainly they're still disciples because they're still following Jesus, but they're now at a new stage of ministry and not just following Jesus, but representing Jesus as his messengers to the world. And so Timothy is not an apostle. Why? Because Jesus doesn't call him an apostle. Jesus calls the 12 apostles. And then, according to 1 Timothy 1.1, Jesus calls Paul an apostle. When did that happen? I don't remember that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That happened on the Damascus Road, when Paul had a direct encounter with a post-resurrection, post-ascension Jesus on the road to Damascus to, to um, pr prosecute and persecute believers, Jesus shows up. Jesus blinds him. Jesus himself says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And that it is Jesus who sends Paul out. So all the, and so the crazy part of this story is that the other disciples, the other apostles, they accept it. They don't at first. You read the story of Paul's biography and, and Acts, and you read the earliest days. There's some question as to whether Peter, James, John, and the others are going to accept this guy who was once persecuting believers. But they accept him as an apostle. And so Paul makes it very clear for a reason. I'm not just, I'm not just a guy who wants to talk to you and tell everybody what to do. I am somebody that was specifically commissioned by Jesus himself in an exceptional way, in a miraculous way. So that's why he uses the term an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. So Paul is the author, Timothy is the audience, but so is the church of Ephesus the audience. Paul wrote 13 letters in your New Testament, and of those 13 letters, four of them he wrote to individuals. And it's really interesting to see the way the different letters read. And I would encourage you, this week, 
read through the six chapters of 1 Timothy. It will not take you long. Write in the margins the questions you have as it comes up, and I'm going to tell you, you're going to read it, and you're going to be like, I don't like that passage. I don't like what he said there. I have questions about that. That's okay. That's why we're going through this together. But read 1 Timothy. Mark some things that encourage you, that bring you hope, and mark some things that, that cause you to have some questions. But as you do, recognize it's not just a personal correspondence between Paul and Timothy. Although it does share those intimate details, it's also a public correspondence where Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, I'm giving directives to Timothy that you all need to listen to and respond to. This message is for you all. So there's, there's four key figures here in those first two verses. Paul, Timothy, God, and Jesus. Paul, we've seen, he is an apostle. He is the only one who is called by Jesus to be an apostle outside of the original disciples of Jesus who he called apostles in Luke chapter 6. He was one of the early apostles who helped to form the doctrine and teaching of the church in those first in those first couple of generations by the command of Jesus it's not just him saying I'm apostle based on my own authority or because Peter made me apostle or John made me apostle I'm an apostle because Jesus called me Jesus is the one who sent me and so you could use the word apostle okay the word apostle could refer to anyone that was a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what, what I'm saying, though, is that there's a uniqueness in Paul's role and the other disciples, the original 12, which then Judas was X'd out of and then Matthias became a part of. Those 13 men had a unique role of being called by Jesus himself. That gave them unique authority within the early church for good reason. So Paul is using his authority, not in an arrogant way, but in a clarifying way. And guys, this is where I think our culture has taught us to be distrusting of authority. We don't like people that play the authority card. But this is Paul arguing not for his own authority, but for Christ's authority. To say, don't listen to me because I'm Paul. Listen to me because I'm doing what Jesus told me to do. And this is something that if we are going to guard the doctrine of the church, guard the deposit of the gospel, is the way Paul describes it to Timothy. If we are to guard that deposit, we need to trust that God gives us authorities for a good reason. And God uses his authority structures that he sets up. So Paul is the apostle by the command of Jesus. Who is Timothy? Paul calls him, in verse 2, my true child of the faith. You see Timothy's story within the life of Paul in the book of Acts. You see how they're interacting together and how um, Paul gets to know Timothy as well as his mother and his grandmother who are also believers. Very little is said about Timothy's father in the scriptures except that we know that Timothy's father is a Greek. We presume that Timothy's father has either died or Timothy's father is not a believer. And this is why Paul has, be, has taken on a special role in Timothy's life to the point where Paul calls Timothy my true child in the faith. A rare, a significantly rare thing for Paul to say in one of his letters about another person. 
And so who is Timothy? Well, we know if you read First and Second Timothy together, there's a few things you know. You know that he's young. You know that from the book of Acts 2. You know that he is a young leader, and Paul tells Timothy, do not let people look down on you because of your youth. Paul anticipates the concern of Timothy's youth and that that will cause a problem within the church that he is leading and within the false teachers that he is combating. But we also know that Timothy is perhaps timid because Paul is continually urging Timothy on. It's like Paul is his exhorter, his encourager, his cheerleader, if you will, to say, come on, Timothy, you can do this. Take your role of authority within the local church. Combat those people who are teaching your people falsely. We also uh, can insinuate from the scriptures that Timothy has some level of, uh, of illness that he's prone to. Because Paul makes a specific point to speak of Timothy's chronic illness within, um, within the books as well. And so here you have somebody that is young, that is timid, that is prone to illness, and there's plenty of reasons why he wouldn't be the ideal candidate in one of the major cities of the Roman Empire where there is a major temple to a false god, where it is a very significant church, where Paul is very concerned about false doctrine coming in. It doesn't sound like Timothy would be the ideal candidate. And yet, that's who God sends. And that's who Paul, in discerning God's wisdom, sends Timothy to do that. And so Paul as an authentic apostle of Christ, messenger of Christ, is giving his authority as a teacher, as a leader of the early church to his true son, Timothy. He uses that language as a way of saying, Timothy speaks for me as I speak for Christ. That's what all of the church of Ephesus needs to hear. That Paul has been called to be Jesus' representative, and Paul is now calling Timothy to be his representative in the trials that are faced ahead. But one thing that we'll see over the next couple months that we just cannot miss is the significance of Paul and Timothy's relationship in the background of the whole letter and everything that we talk about. It's one of those things that, that gets talked about within the discipleship framework of a local church. We describe those that disciple others as Paul's and those that are discipled as Timothy's. And we've, incurred, we've probably used that language here with you before of everyone needs a Timothy. Everyone needs somebody that they're pouring into. And everyone needs a Paul. Everyone needs somebody that pours into them. Second Timothy 2.2, one of the most foundational verses in my own life and calling into ministry, says, the things that you have heard from me. So Paul is telling Timothy, the things that you have heard from me, Paul. You now need to teach those to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he says, Paul, first generation, I've taught you, Timothy, second generation, in the presence of others. There's more in that second generation. Now you, Timothy, go teach a third generation so that that third generation can teach a fourth generation. That's the simple model of the local church. That's what Paul is calling Timothy to do in Ephesus and throughout all the world that Timothy would do ministry in, to teach to teach others that would teach others that would teach others that would teach others. That's how the church lasts for 2,000 years. Grows, expands, and God blesses it. But Paul and Timothy's relationship is essential because here's a, here's a truth from Scripture that you need to know. People reach people. People teach people. Some of us believe that we can grow our relationships with Christ sitting in a closet, 
by ourselves without the presence and influence of local people. And I'm going to tell you that that is partially true. Some of that can happen. But God in his great wisdom designed his church to work as in no one can hear the gospel. Romans 10 tells us this. No one can hear the gospel without somebody, another person, proclaiming it to them. You cannot have a life with Christ without another person who invests that initial seed of the gospel with you. And and so, the truth is real, that the plan for growth in Christ involves other people too. That people don't just grow on their own without the input of local people. God in his spirit is so faithful, and God in his word has revealed so much of himself to us. But God uses people to reach people, and God uses people to teach people, and God uses people to disciple people, to encourage people, to uplift people, to exhort, to bear one another's burdens. People need other people, and God uses people in people's lives. It's a simple truth that needs to be reiterated every time we have the opportunity in Scripture. Because here's where we are as a society. We're lonely. And and we all kind of know it. We're in the midst of a lonely generation of people. We have an older generation that's lonely, wondering, does anyone actually care about the crisis that I face? Does anyone actually care about the wisdom that I've learned? Does anyone actually care about the despair that I'm now experiencing? We have a middle generation that is lonely as they're just fighting to survive and and provide for families and get through this season of time that they're in. Younger generation of young parents that have no idea what they're doing half the time that are just trying to stay afloat. Young young mothers that are holding children and and juggling uh, careers and children and family life and responsibilities and need someone else alongside them. Young fathers that are looking in the mirror saying, I don't know who I'm supposed to be as a man, as a father, as a dad to these children, as a husband to this woman. And all sorts of adolescents and young people that have no idea how to even, in the mixed messages of this culture, figure out who they are and what they're supposed to do. Because there are conflicting messages coming at them every single day. And yet, We live in this individual society that has told us, you've got to figure that out on your own. That has told us, you don't have to be who anybody else wants you to be. You need to chart your own course. You need to figure out your own life. You need to define your own identity. And some of that can be really tempting to embrace and say, yeah, I don't want to be, I don't want to be who that person tells me to be. I want to chart my own course. I want to be my own person. But that sort of thinking can separate us from one another and and put so much responsibility on that individual person where they feel like, I've got to find this path on my own. I'm going to separate from others. I'm going to do this on my own. And the older generation is left saying, here we invested all of these years. We've gained wisdom and we don't know how to use it. We don't know how to serve, how to help, how to support the younger generation. And trust me, Satan, one of his favorite tactics to pull people apart is generational gaps, societal gaps, any way that the enemy can separate people, he's going to do it. And so there's probably something that the Spirit of God right now may be stirring up in your mind, a question, what should I do? 
Is there somebody I need to connect with deeper? Do I have real meaningful relationships? Maybe the Spirit of God is asking you that question right now. Is there somebody that has discipled me? Is there somebody that I'm discipling? Is there somebody that I'm accountable to? Is there somebody that I could actually go to in that time of crisis? Another man, another woman who would actually bear my burdens with me. Maybe the Spirit of God is bringing up that question in your mind. And as the Spirit of God is bringing that question in your mind, what is also likely happening is that the enemy is bringing up a reason not to do it. Well, no, that person, I, re- I really want to reach out to that person, but they're so busy, they don't have time. That person, I, I just, I really respect them, I really love them, but you know, they might tell me something that I don't like. Maybe they'll be too hard on it, or you know, maybe, maybe they don't, you know, I, I like them, I think I could learn from them, but, but maybe they just think I'm too immature and they don't want to waste their time on me. All those sorts of things that the enemy brings up to give us reason to disconnect from somebody else. You know, I really need to talk to my parents about this, but they're, they just won't get it. They're old. I really need to talk to somebody else about this, but I just, my problems are unique. I'm, I'm not like everybody else. Nobody's going to understand. Those things are from the enemy, meant to separate people from each other. And the work of the local church is people reaching people. The work of the local church is to come together in community, in relationships that do not make sense and will not work without, of the, without the bond of Christ bringing people together. And that means that, that, that we need to take advantage of the opportunities we have for being with other people, for gathering in corporate worship together as we do this morning, for, for life groups and small group atmospheres like we have this evening, for prayer meeting on Wednesday night, for, uh, you know, there's, there's a generation in the church where the midweek service was so significant, and there's so much wisdom in the midweek gathering of the local church, because six days is hard It's hard to go six days without gathering in the local church and reassembling with brothers and sisters around the beauty of the gospel of Christ. And so much of our ministry happens on Sundays to where we have something for everybody on Sunday morning, we have something for everybody on Sunday night, but we need help the rest of the days of the week too. We need people the rest of the days of the week too. And so we need to build relationships. We need to connect with one other person. We need to connect in groups of people And if you're struggling on a Wednesday and you say, man, I just really need to connect with other believers, 7 o'clock Wednesday evening, just join us. No matter where you are in your walk with Christ, join us for prayer, join us for fellowship. There's so much to learn from this level of relationship we see between Timothy and Paul. And so my challenge to you right now, start praying. Sermon's not over, but here's an application right now. Start praying about who God is calling you to go deeper with. Because I, I truly believe for every single one of us in this room today, there's somebody that God is calling us to contact in the immediate aftermath of this service and say, you know what, I do need, I do need a deeper relationship with somebody. And I think the Spirit of God has put on my heart, I need a deeper relationship with you. So, Paul, Timothy, God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our hope. It is significant that Paul, here in in chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Timothy, he puts the responsibility of salvation on God the Father and not Jesus the Son. That may be interesting to you. 
it may be nothing to you. Because if you were to ask, well, who is our Savior? Most of us would say Jesus. Paul, in 1 Timothy, makes a particular point, a unique point in his letters, to call not Jesus the Savior, but God the Savior. Why? Because Paul is trying to say that everything that happens with the local church starts and ends with God the Father. He initiates everything. He has sovereign control over everything. He is the ultimate Savior. He sent Jesus. He rescued, he, he, um, he ra- raised Jesus from the dead. He rescued us from our sin, and he made the way for us to have new life. And so it's helpful to think of the Trinity and to separate the roles of the Trinity. And, and God is the one, is the sovereign Lord over all salvation. Jesus is the, the atoning sacrifice and the high priest. Uh, the Spirit of God is the one who regenerates us. It's helpful to think in those distinctions, three persons doing three things. But at the end of the day, the Trinity, the Godhead, is completely unified. And what God does, the Son does. And what the Spirit does, God does. And so on and so forth. So God is the Savior who has ignited our salvation and initiated the whole process. And Jesus Christ is our hope. And there's probably somebody here this morning or somebody listening online that struggles with that word hope and struggles with knowing what to even do with that word. Because it doesn't feel like your life is hopeful right now. Others of you might think, man, I'm good. I really like my life right now. I really like where I am. And for you, good for you. I'm happy for you. The rest of us are struggling. I'm just kidding. In those seasons where we think we've got it all figured out, where we have great hope, that is when we actually do need to take great care because that's when the enemy comes in to take those things that have brought us hope and to start to rip, rip at them to tear them away, to tear away the structures that we have built up for ourselves to think that we're insulated from the cares and concerns of this world. So if anyone thinks that they have hope, make sure that it is centered not in the status of your life, but in the state of your eternity, that Christ is the hope for all eternity and for all redemption. So as we unpack Christ's hope, let's let's look at one of the uniquenesses of verse 2. We're going to start to wind it up this way. Paul's conclusion, Paul's blessing in 1 Timothy 1-2. I'm going to put it on the screen, and for all of you scholars of the New Testament, for all of you that have read and memorized all of Paul's works, tell me what's different. Obviously, he calls Timothy my true child in the faith. But can you see what is different about this passage, so unique to Paul's letters? Paul writes 13 letters. Nine to local churches, four to individuals. And in every letter, he has something like grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. But in 11 of those letters, there's two words that he uses in his blessing over his audience. Grace and peace. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That exact quote is in the beginning of Paul's letters nine times. And two other times, it's almost exact. And then two times, it's different. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? What what is the distinction? Well, I'll tell you, one time is here in 1 Timothy. 
The second time, 2 Timothy. So that's got to be significant, right? That Paul's writing to this young guy who is timid, who is prone to illness, who has been given this incredible calling that, that Paul is concerned Timothy is going to struggle under this calling, and he's writing grace and peace to everybody, but when it comes to Timothy, it's grace, mercy, and peace. So what are those three words of benediction that Paul is giving to his audience and, and actually giving to us too? Well, we understand grace as the free gift of salvation, God's kindness to all, God's kindness that leads to salvation for the guilty and the undeserving. It is by God's grace that we are saved. And so God is, or so Paul is proclaiming grace over all of his audience. But mercy, mercy goes beyond this idea of grace, and it is God's, God's pity on the wretched one who cannot save himself. It's a very similar term in the New Testament, but it's a little bit different. Mercy recognizes the complete incapacity of the person that's, reserving, that's receiving mercy. Grace is a free gift. Mercy is God's pity in lifting up a broken sinner. And so recognize that, God, that Paul is not just proclaiming something impersonal and something generic to all of the church. Paul is doing something deeply personal in this sentence and throughout this letter to go beyond his normal greeting and his normal benediction to proclaim mercy over a young man that he cares deeply about. But here's the message for all of us in this one sentence. We need God's unmerited favor in his grace. It is only through the cross of Christ that you can have a new life with him. The peace that comes, part three, is only established with God because of the grace and mercy of Jesus on the cross. And so grace is God's kindness to the guilty and undeserving. Mercy is his pity to those who cannot save themselves. And peace is God's reconciliation for those who were once rebels against the throne of God. And all of these things Paul is proclaiming over Timothy and all of these things Brothers and sisters, friends, he's proclaiming over us. This is what we need, and this is the core. This is where we're going to get to over the next few weeks. That what matters most in the life of the church, that core of doctrine, is the gospel. That the center that we must protect, proclaim, and believe, it's the gospel. That it's only by grace that we are saved, it's only because of Christ's mercy that we can stand in his presence. And it's only because he has achieved for us peace with God. through. And all of this came through God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So now, in light of that, we must respond. I'll go ahead and have the band start making their way up here. If we believe this, if we believe that God's mercy, grace, and peace are here as an offer for all of us, then, friends, we must respond to this some way. And this is something that we probably need a little bit of work on as a local church. That we really need to, if, if we're going to say that God uses people to reach people, and God uses people to teach people, then, then we really need to hold each other accountable to do something. And I mean do something with what God says. And listen, today we've only got two verses. We've only got two verses to highlight 
And next weeks we'll have more and more as we go. But the challenge from the Holy Spirit of God right now is to do something in light of what we have heard. To do something about the grace, mercy, and peace that we receive. And so one of the things we're going to emphasize, how are you going to respond to this message? Because you must respond. Some of you, you may choose to come forward. We're going to stand, we're, we're going to sing. Some of you may choose to come forward to have a deeper and greater experience with the grace of God. Maybe it's new for you. Maybe you've never confessed your sins and truly come to Christ in salvation. Now's the time to come. Come forward to the altar. It's wide open for you. I will meet you there. Maybe some of us need to just drop where we are and go to our knees in prayer, begging God for fresh mercy. Because he says his mercies are new every morning. Maybe you need to, maybe your response this morning is to do what I said earlier and go to another person and say, I'm struggling, I need you, I need to go deeper with somebody. Will you be that somebody for me? Maybe you need to renew a commitment to actually believe that there is a core to this movement we call Christianity, this life with Christ. Read through 1 Timothy this week and say, God, I, I am looking for what this life is all about. I want to go deeper. I want to grow more. And some of you, you just need, you just need to experience mercy at the cross. And so I'd invite you, as we sing, do what the Spirit leads you to do in response. Come to the altar, stand and sing, kneel, go find that other person right now, and let's go deeper together because his mercy is fresh for us today. His grace is a beautiful gift with us today. And we have a, as a people have received as a gift peace with God. Let's do so. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark can stop? Life from getting through. We do. Do you wish that you could see it all then? Is all creation groaning? It is. Is the new creation coming? the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst. It is. is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone
Claim your worth this morning. Send us out with a deeper understanding, a deeper experience of who you are and the great worth of Jesus, your son, the Lion of Judah, who conquers death and our greatest enemy, and the Lamb who was slain, who took the punishment so that we would not have to, and came to new life so that we would have the opportunity for new life in you. We proclaim the grace that you have given us, the mercy at the cross, and the peace that you have achieved between us and yourself. Send us out as hope-filled ambassadors of this message today into a world that needs it. We love you, Father. Amen. Now remain standing to receive the blessing from the Lord. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.